0: Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. We're back with episode 33 of Not Artificially Sweetened. Thank you for taking the time to listen to what we've got to bring to you this week. As usual, we cover all things diabetes. With me in studio, as usual, Dr. Stan Landau. Hello, everybody, and hello, Michael. Hi, Stan. I had a few days off over the last weekend, and I must say I'm feeling much
1: refreshed, and I'm really looking forward to this session today. I am too, because when you think about the nature of healthcare education for healthcare practitioners, and in fact, talks that are given for people with diabetes, more and more in the modern day, one is seeing a non-doctor involved in our education sessions. And if we think of our organization's journal club held just a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed a clinical psychologist and we spoke about eating disorders. 20 years ago, when you and I were kind of fledgings in diabetes medicine, talks were only given by doctors. Mm -hmm. It was really medicine-based and laboratory work-based. So just from the nature of the change, it's really made it far more inclusive, which is ultimately something we strive for on this podcast. Remember listeners, you can listen to this podcast on Spotify as well as the Apple podcast platform. Give us a like, share, and subscribe to these podcasts. Remember to drop us a line at podcast at cdediabetes.coza.
0: So Stan, what have you come across in the literature
1: or in your clinical experiences this week? Well, much like every springtime in the Southern Hemisphere, one is confronted with allergic conditions, Mm -hmm. seasonal allergies, whether it be in the nose, the eyes, or the skin. It made me reflect that skin conditions are in fact very commonly seen in people with diabetes Mm -hmm. and a very high proportion of people who come for their regular medical consultations will often bring to the practitioner's attention a particular skin condition. And if you were to write a textbook on skin conditions that occur with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, there are Numerous and commonly seen things mustn't be dismissed because they can represent literally a condition that is more than just skin deep. In other words, what we're seeing on the surface of the skin may very well represent harms or potential harms that are brewing within the person with diabetes at that particular point in time. Right. They're often dismissed. You know, at this time of year, it's easy to call anything eczema. It's itchy. Put something on it. Stop scratching. But we see a particular skin condition in people who have very high abnormal cholesterol levels. Yes. These little bumps and lumps, which have a wonderful Greek name. Called Called xanthomata, eruptive xanthelasma mm-hmm. are particularly itchy, and they occur in the palms and elsewhere in the body. And it's a clue that the cholesterol profiles are markedly elevated. So I think when we offer training to healthcare providers in diabetes, you've always got to think beyond the norm, and that the person with diabetes may well have a skin condition that's unrelated to their diabetes, but very often it is in fact intimately linked. If I may for a moment, just alert listeners to this podcast that there are very many skin conditions that you can even see in the setting of so-called prediabetes. And one of the most common that we often point out to people, their families and their caregivers is a condition called acanthosis nigricans. Mm. Now, that mouthful of a word really represents a darkening and velvet-like skin change that you can see at the back of the neck in the armpits, around the belly button, and in fact in the groin. And it's highly representative of a person at risk or if not having already developed their diabetes. So I would say to listeners out there, both practitioners and people with diabetes, people who care for people with diabetes, keep your eyes open. And if something shows up on the skin, it's really worthwhile bringing it to the attention of the healthcare provider at the time of your next medical meetup.
0: It's a great reminder, Stan. A few years ago when we were still publishing our quarterly community journal diabetes lifestyle we did a series on skin disorders and diabetes and i think it covered about five issues so there's a number of conditions and acanthosis nigricans is something i often see in the supermarket queue when you're standing behind someone and you can see that dark velvety skin on the back of the neck so a great reminder there Stan, I just also wanted to comment on the misdiagnosis of type 1 diabetes. When we spoke to Jaco Ferreira a couple of weeks ago, he told of his misdiagnosis and how it really affected his life so negatively, especially in the months following his marriage. And an article came out recently in the Annals of Internal Medicine where they looked at 947 adults diagnosed eventually with type 1 diabetes. And 37% were not diagnosed with type 1 diabetes until after the age of 30 years. Mm -hmm. Diagnosis was also more often delayed amongst men and people with diverse ethnicity. They also said that emerging data suggested that up to 62% of type 1 diabetes cases develop after the age of 20 years. So I think it's another reminder, please, to be aware, don't just view everything after the age of 20 or 30 as being type 2 diabetes, because the treatment approach and the risks associated are entirely different for both conditions.
1: What I forgot to mention at the time of Yaku's interview, which was astonishing, as you alluded to, is that if you sit and take a moment to ask a person with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, particularly somebody older than their teenagers, there's always a story that's worth listening to, because inevitably, this is something that is missed day after day after day. And Michael, how often have you and I said on this podcast, we're 33 episodes in, it's the most important part of diabetes management, getting the diagnosis right?
0: Yeah, if you don't get that right, nothing else will follow. Time to bring in our studio guest, and we're very pleased to welcome into the studio Alnay Fasahi. Alnay is a counseling psychologist. She's a lecturer and researcher at the University of Pretoria. I'm not going to say much more, El, now I'd like you to really paint the picture around your involvement in diabetes. But one of the things that I often come across when I speak to healthcare professionals about management of diabetes, and let's say, for example, that person has not traditionally managed diabetes, one of the first things they say to me, oh, diabetes, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, Those people, they never listen to a single word I tell them. And for me, that statement is pregnant with lack of insight into how the condition should be approached so what made you interested in the field of diabetes and more specifically type 2 diabetes on which your research now is focusing
2: hi stan and michael Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to talk to you both today. And I, I think that's a very good question to delve into with Michael, because it's very introspective, isn't it? Which is, I think, what the mental health is all about. So I think where it started was when I was doing my master's way back when I got involved with type 1 diabetes, and we explored the social support and how that helped with management. And I like connection mm-hmm. and i enjoyed the social support aspect of it because it showed that it helped so much especially peer support where they could have those shared experiences and learn from each other but then after my master's i started going into private practice and i started working predominantly from a cbt perspective let's stop you there what is cbt so cbt cognitive behavioral therapy it's one of the many therapeutic paradigms that we get. What CBT says is that our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors affect each other. So how I think about something will then create this emotional response, and then I will do something about it. So if we link it to diabetes, if I feel like I'm not in the mood. To eat right today. Maybe I feel a bit tired. Maybe I feel disappointed. Then I maybe grab the nice chocolate to make me feel better. But then it triggers another thought of hmm, maybe I shouldn't have done that. And then this whole cycle continues. But I think if you take it a step deeper, CBT says that we have different belief systems and different perspectives about several things in our lives, and that that influences how we approach different things.
0: So what you're saying, I'd like to hone in on this for health practitioners listening, is that human beings are not stimulus response organisms. Mm -hmm. We don't act reflexively. There are other things that modify our behavior from the initial stimulus to the performance of a behavior. And these include emotions, cognitions or thoughts, values, attitudes, beliefs, experiences. There's a whole lot of other intervening things that can modify our behavior And so maybe what you're telling us is those are an area in which we can focus our interventions to help people to self-manage better. Would that be fair?
2: Absolutely. As you've explained it like that, you can see how complex it is because there are so many things to consider. Right. When we look at self-management or our attitudes, behaviors, beliefs, Um, there are so many things that we need to change and challenge in order to maybe get the behavior that we want.
1: If behavioral outcomes are very important in the management of diabetes, they may differ from age, they may differ from the state of your health and the type of diabetes that you have. Elna, you have a particular leaning towards type 1, type 2 diabetes. Does your practice differ in that? And for that matter, for your interests, because I know when we were chatting before we were recording the show, you're busy with a PhD at the moment, and that's looking at type 2 diabetes. Yes, that,
2: and that's where the shift came from. When I was in private practice, I started seeing more people with type 2 diabetes. And also on the personal side, I think I related to it a bit more because of the lifestyle changes that you have to make with regards to type 2 diabetes. It's very much related to how we eat, our physical activity levels, and there are things that we can do to modify it. And on my own personal journey with stress and eating, I was always a fussy eater. I would never eat my veggies. And as I grew to understand how my stress levels and how these habits of mine influence my own body, I saw how important it was to make changes. And I went on my own personal journey of Slowly starting to introduce more healthy foods, introducing exercise. And I think that developed quite a big passion for helping people that need to make this adjustment. And specifically why type 2 is considering the age at which they get diagnosed more adults get diagnosed, they're set in their routines, they're set in their belief systems, they're set in how they view food, how they view physical activity, their responsibility. So making those adjustments at that stage is quite difficult. And I think that really got me excited when I engage with these clients of mine and thought that, hey, if we start brainstorming different ways of thinking about it or introducing different types of experiments, it actually helped their self-management.
0: So studying for a PhD is all about looking at areas of new understanding into a particular topic. So I understand that your PhD thesis is looking at cognitive behavioral therapy in the field of type 2 diabetes. What did we already know about the field and what has your research brought out? What are the new items that we should be including in our understanding of this area?
2: Mm -hmm. I think what has been proven before is that CBT works for different mental health disorders. It's been proven. But what we found, especially initially when we started looking at the research, was that there is limited focus on self-management specifically. So using CBT to change the everyday instead of just changing the pathology that accompanies type 2 diabetes, for example, depression or anxiety, eating disorders. We wanted to use it to approach the everyday self-management tasks So, for example, when I have a craving, how do I challenge that? What are different behavioral activities that I can do? And I, I think that is the new that we wanted to introduce. Right. But also taking it further, the PhD was divided into four sections that we approached. So first, we wanted to explore the CBT literature in terms of self-management and see what's out there. And when we did it, we only found nine studies that looked specifically at self-management and not at the mental health disorders that developed because of it. And then the second part, we interviewed adults who effectively managed their type 2 diabetes. So their HbA1Cs were less than seven and then also those who struggled. And their HbA1Cs ranged between 10 and 14 and 15. And there were some fascinating results in terms of the thoughts, emotional experiences, and behaviors. And from those two articles in the research that we did, we developed CBT guidelines. And the aim of this was to evaluate how effective the content and quality are of these CBT guidelines. And then after the PhD, the goal is to implement this with healthcare practitioners in various settings just to make it more accessible to people with type 2 diabetes.
1: I'm very keen to understand some of those early guideline developments, but let's give you a clinical scenario here. Mm. A person with type 2 diabetes in our setting is having great difficulty managing their diabetes. And the healthcare provider they're seeing determines that a psychological intervention is going to be appropriate. Mm. Now, loosely speaking, in South Africa, the Healthcare Professions Council have different classes of clinical psychology, counseling psychology, and the like. Often a person will be referred to a psychologist. Go and see Mary. She's a great psychologist. First question for you is, how do you know CBT is right for the person sitting in front of you such that you can get them to the therapy that they are appropriately going to benefit from? And secondly, what makes an adult with type 2 diabetes an inappropriate candidate to refer that to so that we kind of give our healthcare providers a sense before they go on their journey?
2: Hmm. Yeah, and that's a very good question. I think, as any critical psychologist would answer, I don't think there's one size fits all. So CBT does not necessarily work for everyone. I think the motivation behind that was more because it looked at the different dimensions of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. But I think firstly, what the person needs to decide whether they want to engage with CBT is, do I want a practical, action oriented approach where it's maybe more collaborative with the psychologist that I'm seeing? Or am I someone that likes to take it slow? Do I engage more in reflective processes? Which is not to say CBT is very reflective. Reflective as well. But I think it depends on the individual and what their needs are. And then, secondly, in the CBT guidelines that we presented to the panel to give us some feedback, a lot of them gave us feedback on we need to consider patient readiness and patient motivation a bit more. So, what we did there is this theory it's Prochaska's Stages of Change. And what they say is people are at different levels of change. And it's the healthcare practitioner's responsibility to gauge where that is. So if the patient or the client does not want to change, there is not a lot that we can do. We can support them, we can be there for them, but then they won't necessarily benefit from the therapy. But If they are ready or struggling with the change, depending on where they are in the cycle, we can kind of meet them there. And what the guidelines did was they gave examples Mm. at every phase what different techniques can be used to help someone maybe move to a stage of readiness or to a stage of maintaining the behaviors that was learned.
0: I think practically from my point of view, I would view people who are acutely symptomatic as not being suitable. Because if we look at Prochaska's stages of change model, together with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to sort out all your physical needs, pain, discomfort, safety, all those kind of things. I would also consider someone with an active or serious emotional disorder or loss of contact with reality. Mm-hmm. You know, they really are battling with major depression or psychosis. Those are the kind of people where we would to defer until we've sorted out the primary issue, would that be fair?
2: Definitely, Michael. I think as you're speaking, I definitely see some of the processes of some of the clients that I've seen play out. It's exactly that. You kind of switch from what the need is at that time or at that moment. If it is, for example, self-management, then we brainstorm and we work on that. But if the mood, such as depression or anxiety is taking over, that's a different mechanism that we have to work on. And therefore, then you would focus on that and first get that settled and then go back to the self-management again.
1: Let me make this a little practical, because when I think of these phases of change, the thing that comes to my mind first and foremost is the person who needs to quit smoking. And if a person has smoking 60 cigarettes a day for 55 years and is resolute that they ain't going to be quitting now, that's the person we recognize is less likely or is non-receptive to quitting. But that idea that you're planting the seed in their mind's eye, that perhaps these are the reasons why smoking cessation would be good. They begin to think about it. I think they spoke about contemplative or pre-contemplative at that stage and aiding that journey. Mm. I think that makes it a little bit easier to understand if I've used that as an analogy. Is that fair? Could smoking cessation fit into a CBT model?
2: Definitely. Yes, because it would be a stepwise process. So people can go cold turkey and some people get it right, but it's definitely more of a process. So you would ask the person to maybe smoke less a day. Let's say, like you said, they smoke up to 60 or 50 cigarettes a day. Okay, how many are you willing to cut today? Let's try and do 40. Hmm. And what I'll do with that is then, okay, let's do a mood check and see if you only smoke 40 how you feel granted maybe the first two three weeks it's going to be tough but let's see how you feel within a month's time and see if there's a change in energy levels a change in how you feel Mm. but a vital concept as well is you can't take something away without implementing something or putting something back so for example if we take away 10 or five cigarettes a day what are we replacing that with what redirected Strategies are we implementing to help? So, would that be before you want to smoke, is it going for a walk around the house once or twice just to see if we can delay that gratification of the cigarette itself?
0: When we engage in any type of CBT approach, what are your thoughts on that? We should always ask permission. May I share this with you? Let's take the example of quitting smoking. In our assessment, we've picked up that you're smoking 40 cigarettes a day. Would you mind me sharing some information on how that might affect your health or your diabetes care? If the person gives me permission, that automatically implies that they are going to take responsibility for what they hear. I just think it's a very powerful tool to get access, let's say an informed consent, basically, to that person's mind. Mm. Because otherwise, it can be almost a bit like the insurance salesman putting their foot in the door when you say, no, thanks. Mm. I think that asking permission is quite important. I'd just like to know your thoughts on that.
2: Absolutely. I would take it back to the basics, the one-on-one of of any type of therapeutic intervention. It's being patient-centered and building that relationship and building that rapport in the beginning, Mm. getting the connection with your patient or with your client. Because when you build on top of that and they feel secure and that they can trust you, you can start introducing more difficult topics of conversation or tell them, listen, listen, This is definitely affecting you in this way. Let's make it food specific. Like if you're drinking five liters of Coke a day, I don't think that is the best way because this, and then you would provide psychoeducation on how it might be affecting them. But then I think it's also putting the ball back in the patient's court and being like, but what are you willing to do or what do you feel able to do for us to start tackling this? Something that I always emphasize with my clients is I always tell them, I'll possibly make you uncomfortable, but I promise I won't throw you into the deep end. And I think it's finding that balance with them. If they react like a, "Mm," you can work with that. Mm. But if they're like, no, that's not doable. They're like, okay, cool. This is too difficult. How do we make it smaller and help them step by step to get to their end goal?
0: Those are great insights, Alnay. I think that person who says, no, that's the insurance salesman's foot in the door. And that's a great warning sign, back off. Mm. But what I'm hearing is a very collaborative approach. And this is what we've highlighted many times on this podcast, is that the approach to the management of chronic conditions has to be different from acute conditions. If I go to a doctor for stub toe, for example, and I need a hematoma drained from my big toenail, it's a very different approach. The doctor's in charge of the process here or she will tell me what needs to be done. And I would say, sure, because I'm in pain, I need relief. But chronic health conditions are vastly different. It means that we have to be so much more collaborative. We have to take into account that person's position in life, their developmental stage, their thoughts, their attitudes, values, beliefs, in building a program of change over time. And what I also liked, what you brought up, was that change necessarily does involve some discomfort because we will never change if we are comfortable. Your thoughts on that?
2: Absolutely. I definitely agree. And I think going back to your first point that you mentioned... I think that's how we approach the guidelines. We develop them into two, three phases. And the first one was the introduction phase where you establish rapport with the patient, where you kind of gauge where they are at in terms of their readiness. And then decide and see what skill deficit they have. Mm. Where do I need to provide them information? What type of education or psychoeducation do they need? Kind of explaining to them this link between thoughts emotions and behavior and then the process of change can start and like you said when that foundation is there they know that you are with them during their process they know they can come to you and be like "We said this thing and it didn't work and i didn't like it and then you're like okay that's fine let's try a different approach so i i think it's that support that they know as a healthcare practitioner, you are there. They can come back to you, provide you feedback, and collaboratively, you can then work on a different idea or a different action plan that might be more suitable to their environment, to their context.
0: Great. also would like to just understand your thoughts on the relationship between thoughts and emotions. In my mind, it's a bit of a bi-directional approach emotions can influence thoughts and thoughts can influence emotions and both together can then influence behavior. Maybe if you just unpack that a little bit for our listeners.
2: Mm, you're, You're spot on Michael. If I take anxiety as an example I think that illustrates so well. So if you walk into something that makes you anxious so let's take you have to write a test or you have to go do your readings for your blood glucose. Immediately you might get thoughts such as what if this doesn't go well? What if I fail? What am I going to do then? How am I going to approach this? What have I done? And then those thoughts create emotions such as anxiety, fear, and I always call it the reaction to the reaction. So The first reaction is, what if something goes wrong? And then our second reaction is these emotions coupled with new thoughts about the initial thought. And that is what then spikes our anxiety and allows these fearful or negative or anxious thoughts to then spiral into different situations, different scenarios that might play out. That just makes us more anxious and more worried.
0: That means probably mindfulness is an essential part of CBT therapy, that we need to train awareness of our thoughts and emotions and how to maybe stop that spiral of thoughts that can descend into really dark places.
2: Mm, Absolutely. I am such a fan of self-compassion. And I think every client that I've seen would testify to this. I think I bring self-compassion in a lot, but I think to first bring it to mindfulness is part of the third wave of CBT, where we don't always focus on changing or altering our thoughts, but we change our relationship with our thoughts, meaning that it's okay if we have a negative or distressing thought. You're allowed to have it. It's normal to have it and when you change that reaction it almost just allows you to take a breath and then reassess the situation and go forward and then where the compassion comes in it's just normalize that you're having this difficulty we all have a craving for unhealthy food sometimes and if you indulge that is fine It's interesting that you brought that up as well because it's something that found in various aspects of my PhD was that reaction It was very cool when we did the interviews, we found that the participants that managed their diabetes well were able to do this quite effectively. So if they deviated from their usual eating plan or if they indulged in a meal, they would just be like, okay, it's done now. You've enjoyed it. Now let's move on and let's sit back into that routine that we've established. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to react about it. So definitely that's the reaction if you can manage that it will
0: help you a lot so it's managing those cycles of guilt and compensatory behaviors
2: yes absolutely
0: we're going to take our weekly pause here for an advocacy message kirsten de klerk is on leave at the moment so i'm going to step in on her behalf and remind our listeners of the upcoming diabetes summit for 2023 this is going to take place on 15 november This meeting will be brought to you by the University of Pretoria Diabetes Research Centre in collaboration with the Diabetes Alliance in South Africa. The theme of this year's summit is Diabetes Targets Translating Policy into Reality. The summit will focus on the newly adopted 90-60-50 target cascade for diabetes and hypertension as a first step to improving early detection and treatment of chronic health conditions. The 2023 Diabetes Summit is aimed at discussing implementation of the National Strategic Plan and the requirements for achieving diabetes and hypertension targets. Interactive discussions will be a major part of the summit, so please think about joining the summit. It's going to take place Wednesday, 15 November 2023 from 8 till 6 in the evening. It will be at the Future Africa Campus at the University of Pretoria, and I'm going to put the
1: link to the webpage for this event in our show notes. Elmey, as we come to the end of this recording, let me put you in the hot seat with some quick fire questions because it sounds as if this is pretty adult orientated. What about a younger person with type one diabetes? Is CBT appropriate in that setting? Would a parent benefit from the CBT, or is this for the person with diabetes
2: only? So CBT in general can be for adults, teenagers, children. I see children from the age of eight, where you then incorporate different CBT principles. You just adjust it depending on the person's age and developmental phase. So, no, definitely, I think CBT can work for most people that come. Because, think about it if a parent comes and they have a certain idea or belief system, thoughts or anxieties about their child or about their partner's diabetes, which work with those thoughts. You can restructure them, challenge them. You can look for evidence that proves these thoughts or disprove these thoughts. So I do think there is a space for different ages
1: Thank you for that. The management of diabetes, type 1, type 2, is an ongoing entity. It's the medical management, nutritional management, structured physical activity. Is there a point at which the CBT component comes to an end? In other words, do you and the client define at the beginning that these are the outcomes we're looking to work? We used the analogy early on of quitting smoking and said, Mm. look, therapy theoretically is done when you've quit smoking and your health has improved. How do you define the endpoint in a CBT process?
2: So I'll take it to the beginning point of CBT because the aim is to make our clients the therapist and equip them with knowledge and skills that they can use going forward in order to help themselves. So at the start, you would set goals and if you achieve them, and terminate the process. But what we have in CBT is somewhat of a consolidation phase or consolidation skills. And this is in the form of doing homework, exercises at the end of each session things for them to practice to see how well they've learned the skill is there anything that we need to adjust but then also allowing them to identify resources and that could be anything resources could be people it could be their own traits it could be anything that helps them to cope and then lastly usually more towards the end of a cbt process you would look at an action plan and you almost take an inventory of what you've learned what you've gained I would always ask my clients to evaluate, okay, when we started out of 10, where were you at? How did you feel? And now out of 10, where are you at? And how long have you been at that space? What skills have we used to get you there? What are the possible difficulties or challenges that you see arising? And then how do we use these skills to tackle that? So I think with CBT and self-management, if we look at implementing it on a more large scale, so healthcare practitioners in different types of clinical settings. I definitely think there would be an end to it, but I think in therapy specifically, you would have check-ins with your clients where they might come on a monthly basis or every two months just to check in and see what has been working. Are you still at a good space? And then what do you need going forward?
1: It sounds like the management of diabetes in general, an agreed treatment plan, negotiation with the person with diabetes, their caregiver, their team, and the ongoing upskilling, both of deliberate skills, knowledge, and the ongoing follow-up. How are you doing? Let's check in. This time we may be covering this, this time we may be covering that. It really fits very well into the management of diabetes and it'll be great to see these guidelines come out hopefully sooner than later because the South African guidelines have only recently been deliberated over there in their final phase of publication. So it'll be nice ultimate recognition of good mental health parallel with the obvious management components that have been around for a lot longer and this real deficiency that we've had of onboarding mental health matters into the management of diabetes in South Africa.
0: Mm, I agree. The really underappreciated component of the general management of diabetes is the field that you have covered in your research, Elna. Mm. The final question for me, it seems that you intimated that more members of the wider diabetes team could be used in delivery of CBT beyond the psychologist. So can you see a role for doctors, diabetes specialist, nurses, dietitians, and so on to use the skills?
2: Yes, definitely, to use the core CBT skills and technique to kind of gauge their clients. I have no idea in which article this was, but they found that a lot of healthcare practitioners didn't necessarily focus on the mental health side when engaging with their patients. And I think this is the purpose of these guidelines. It's not a therapeutic intervention, but it's giving practitioners a set of skills with some direction and telling them... This is the map that you have. Kind of see where your client fits in with this. What is the skill deficit that they have? And is it possible for you to help them develop that? So I definitely see it being implemented on a broader scale, providing training and helping people, especially in South Africa. Not everyone has the ability to see a mental health professional. And I think that's quite important to make these skills accessible to as many people as possible and help them fundamentally with their self-management to improve it.
1: Right. I think that there are a lot of people who come to a medical consultation who are perhaps wishing that the healthcare provider digs deeper into some of the aspects of their mental health and well being. And how would I say that? Well, back in the day before we had Viagra and we were thinking about impotence, as the word in those days, and erectile dysfunction, after 1997 and the availability of drugs like Viagra, it became part of the day to day conversation. And men were very grateful. You know, Doc was embarrassed to bring it up and I'm so pleased you did. (laughs) And it's now part of the mainstream. And perhaps mental health matters will follow suit as that you start scratching that surface Taking notice of Michael's idea of asking that permission component, but I do think people often want that to come from the practitioner's side. You know, ask me about it and I'll tell you. Open that door and refer on down the road. And Elna, just as we come to the end here, Michael and I are supervisors on master's courses for diabetes medicine, and there's nothing better than a master's submission that has practical value in the community in which it's deployed. Absolutely. Here you are telling us about a PhD that will literally hit the ground running. Mm. It's not a pie in the sky theoretical idea which certainly has its place, and we've seen the Nobel Prizes issue this week, but your PhD is really going to change diabetes practice, and I'm very grateful for that. For sure. So
0: with that, thank you very much, Elnay, for joining us. I think your input today is a huge reminder to health professionals to bring up an examination and an assessment of emotional and cognitive health as part of the preventative approach to the management of diabetes and not as a reactive thing when we suddenly see the HB1C maybe is 14% and now we think, okay, now there's something else going on, but maybe to integrate that right from the beginning. So we thank you for your insights. We look forward to the publication of your research and more importantly, the practical implementation of the guidelines within the communities. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much, Stan and Michael.
0: So thank you for being with us. Please check out our weekly question and our polls in the show notes. And we look forward to joining you again next
1: week. And that's goodbye for me too. Over and out.
0: Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes... The health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The Views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap.
2: Yay!